This is the All In Gospel Podcast, where we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, every week. If you like the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or join us at allingospel.com. Enjoy your Bible study. Blessings. All right, so we'll be in Exodus. We're going to start in Exodus 37 tonight. Uh, and I'm going to tell you, like, the I think, because we're going to try to do 37, 38, 39, 40. I'm going to tell you what I think the takeaways are from this before we start, so that while we're going through it, you can think, ah, oh, this is just good discipline for my brain because of these two themes. And I think what you're going to get as we wrap up, basically, the end of Exodus is, and they finally obeyed. They finally did what they were supposed to do. And things start going really well for Israel. And there's fruitfulness in it. And there's bounty. And they're happy people. It's like um, all the Who's down in Whoville finally figured out how to sing together. And they started their joyful existence. And that we're off to the end of the journey. Because the start of the journey was they were slaves in Israel. And miserable and complaining and crying out to the Lord in their misery. But here we are and we've suddenly got the kind of the, the Who's down in Whoville Israel. That's a huge journey. So one, theme number one is remembering that journey that we've been on. Like that this is all kind of the conclusion of a very long narrative in the Bible of how God made his nation. And here at the end of it, they're worshiping God in their work and what they're creating. Theme number two, obedience. They've been screwing that part up the whole book, but finally they get it right and God honors it. And I think that's just one of the best parts about it. So they're doing everything to the letter of the law. And to make that point clearly, the Bible has explains them doing each little thing. And they're summing up the last huge 10 chapters of the book saying, and they did it exactly like they did. And if you remember way back in the day, it said God gave it the instructions to Moses as a pattern. They're supposed to do this according to the pattern that the Lord gave to Moses. And that phrase, as the Lord commanded Moses, or some form of it, is going to get used 19 times between 36 and the next few chapters. So that's a major biblical theme here that they're trying to point out is they did it like they were told. Um, so there we go. So in 36, we kind of started into this end section, and they had all the parts of the tabernacle assembled and put together. So as we go forward, now we're going to get all the implements that are going to go into that tabernacle, starting with the Ark of the Testimony. Then Bezalel, remember he's one of the art, the uh, the named artists that were doing this, made the Ark of Acacia wood. Two and a half cubits was its length, a cubit and a half was its width, and a cubit and a half was its height. Okay, I'm going to not do this with every sentence, but that's exactly what they were told to do back in Exodus 25. So that's that obedience, compliance, that they're doing it like they're supposed to, right? As they give the exact same details as what Moses was told back in Exodus 25. So if you want to, I'll try to give the chapters that we're in as we go through this. But right now we're in Exodus 25, and they're doing what they were told to do back then. And then back in Exodus 37, verse 2, he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold all around it. He cast for it four rings of gold to be set in its four corners, two rings on one side, two rings on the other side. He made the poles of acacia wood, overlaid them with gold, and he put the poles into the rings of the sides of the ark to bear the ark. 
So the first implement that gets made after that tabernacle is the ark gets made. It's going to define them as a nation. It's the centerpiece of this thing. It's what holds God's word um, and God's leadership for the country. So then they make a mercy seat. What goes on top of that law? Um, so God the Father has both the law and he has mercy. Verse 6, he made the mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits was its length and a cubit and a half its width. He made two cherubim of beaten gold and he made them of one piece at the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub at one end of, on this side and the other cherub at the other end on that side. I like how it's this side and that side. He made the, it's, it's almost like the writer is standing next to the ark while he's watching him work on it. He made the cherubim at the two ends of one piece with the mercy seat and the cherubim spread out their wings above and covered the mercy seat with their wings. They faced one another and the faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat. Later in Revelation, the mercy seat is when you see the layout of heaven in Revelation, the thing that sits in that spot is the throne of God. And in the ark, it's called the mercy seat. The only article where the destruction of it is not historically recorded in the Bible. It has never been recorded that the ark has been destroyed, giving rise to an outstanding movie plot Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's one of those lost artifacts in history. Everything else I'm about to read about gets destroyed in one of the invasions or in Bab by Babylon taking it away or something like that. But this one, supposedly, is still out there somewhere. And I can't wait for it to be found. I think when the Ark is actually found, half the world will doubt that it's really the Ark. And the other half will be like, that's pretty cool that the Ark's been found. But I think it'll be towards the end times. So then we make the table with the showbread. So we've got the law and the mercy. Now we get God's fellowship or that hope that we'll meet God face to face. He made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit was its width, and a cubit and a half its height. He overlaid it with pure gold, made a molding of gold all around, and he made a frame of a hand's breadth all around it. He made a molding of gold for the frame all around it. He cast it four rings of gold and put rings on the four corners that were at its four legs. The rings were close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And he made the poles of acacia wood to bear the table. And he overlaid them with gold and he made pure gold of the utensils, which were on the table, its dishes, its cups and its bowls and its pitchers for pouring. Here we see the first example of they're really doing this in order at this point. And when we went through Exodus chapter by chapter, the utensils got made later. So there, there's been a rearrangement of when they've been spoken of. And I'll come back to that a little bit later. But right now it's the table and everything that goes with the table. And the same thing for the lampstand. Um, the lampstand represents God's light, his illumination, his spirit. So now you could argue we have the father, we have the son of fellowship, and we have the light of the Holy Spirit. God's spirit lights the entire tabernacle. Verse 17, he made the lampstand of pure gold. Of hammered work, he made the lampstand. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, its flowers were of the same piece. And six branches came out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand on one side, three branches of the lampstand on the other side, which makes a menorah. And there were three bowls made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and flower, and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and flower. And so for the six branches coming out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself were four bowls made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there was a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches extending from it. That's pretty good, wasn't it? It's almost like I practiced. 
Their knobs and their branches were of one piece, and all of it was a hammered piece of pure gold. And he made seven lamps, its wick trimmers, its trays of pure gold, and a talent of pure gold. He made it with all its utensils. Notice that everything inside the tabernacle is made of pure gold. So all you see in the tabernacle is gold, light, and these beautiful sheets and linens that they've hung in. And he made the altar, incense altar of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit, and its width was a cubit, and its square and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it, and he overlaid it with pure gold, its top, its sides all around its horns, and he made for it a molding of gold all around it, and he made two rings of gold for under its molding, and by its corners on both sides, as holders for the poles which bear it, and he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And one last thing that goes inside the tabernacle, he made the holy anointing oil and the pure incense of sweet spices according to the work of the perfumer. And we're done with the first chapter of tonight. Everything that needs to be inside the tabernacle gets covered in chapter 37. The original instructions started with some of these implements, um, but, in, but here we have the whole interior of the tabernacle along with the oil, the prayer altar, all those pieces. Um, but that doesn't seem to be an issue here, and the Bible's not trying to say that you have to do it in the same order the instructions were given, but the order does matter in that these are the tools or the representation of heaven in our relationship to God, or even God's character in his three manifestations. Um, so this is how God reconciles to humans. Chapter 38 after they've done the tent in 36, everything that's in it in 37, now we do everything that's outside the tabernacle in 38. He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Well, if you were ice skating most of the day, this is going to be a hard one to stay awake through. So I will try to take breaks to keep it moving. But anyways, he made an altar of burnt of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length, and at five cubits its width, it was square and its height was three cubits. He made its horns on the four corners, and the horns were one piece with it. He overlaid it with bronze, and he made all the utensils for the altar, the pans, the shovels, the basins, the forks, the fire pans, all its utensils he made of bronze, and he made a grate of bronze, network for the altar, under its rim, midway from the bottom. He cast four rings of the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles, and he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze, and then he put the poles into the rings on the sides of the altar, with which to bear it, and he made the altar hollow with boards, making the first barbecue in human history. Verse 8, he made a laver, bronze, and its base of bronze, and from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of Mary. This is new. So in verse 8, I mentioned this when we were back in chapter 30 of Exodus, but this little piece is new to this part of the text. Where they got the bronze for the laver wasn't mentioned before. Um, and there's some interesting phrasing here. So I'm going to stop on this first because it's kind of new content and there's some kind of cool stuff here. First of all, the word assembled in verse eight is actually the word that gets used with a, in a military context. They've assembled as for war in front of the tabernacle. Um, so they're making camps and the, we also see a glimpse of these women outside the tabernacle in first Samuel chapter two, verse 22. And they use the same phrase there. In fact, it's the only two places in the Bible they use it, that there were these women that assembled for war, made a camp outside the tabernacle, which is kind of interesting. It seems like there were women that helped with something with the ministry and the priesthood and everything else. Um, and it also stands in defiance of people to say that women weren't in ministerial roles, because even in the Old Testament, they were in ministerial roles. We don't quite know what that role was, 
and Aaron was uniquely a high priest, and we're going to get a lot of detail as to what those people did. Um, but we do see this mentioned here at the beginning, and even in 1 Samuel, of these women that served outside the tabernacle and assembled there. So it was like they were on camp or on duty all the time. It could have been a prayer group, like these are women that held them up in prayer. It could have been something where they helped with cleaning the bowls or doing some of the, the, the priestly work that was there. Um, or it could be that they were repairing things all the time. Like we don't know what they did, but we know that the word assembled is the same one we use for they were on duty or they saw it as a duty for themselves. Um, okay, and then the idea of these visions or the ability to look at themselves in a mirror. The mirrors, the bronze mirrors, that word actually means bronze visions. So it's a word that means mirror in the Hebrew, but the literal meaning of it is to see something or to have a vision of it. So I think it's good here that what gets given up is that tool for vanity gets put in this place where as the priests are going to serve God, they kind of have to have a vision or look at themselves in the mirror as they're doing that cleansing and washing. That image carries out through the New Testament too. And I think I mentioned these before, but it's worth mentioning here as we do it. Every time the priests would prepare, they had to take this look at themselves while they washed. And James 1, 22 through 25 talks about how the word of God is like a mirror with which we examine ourselves. When we read the truth of God's word, we're supposed to look at ourselves with it. Ephesians 5, 26 said that believers are supposed to experience the washing of water by the word. So the word of God is compared in the New Testament in two ways. One is a mirror and one is a tool for washing, both of which are a reference to this laver of washing that happens outside the tabernacle. And it sits right between the bronze altar where you are justified and sacrifice things and the tabernacle where you meet with God. So there's justification, there's cleansing, and then there's the meeting with God. And those three things, those three stages happen in order uh, and they happen consistently. Now I want to read one more thing about this too. The word of God then, John 17, 17, the word is truth. And part of how we wash ourselves and sanctify ourselves for service to the king is we have to start in a place of truth. And humans are horrible about lying to themselves, starting with like basic like psychology, right? We lie about our self-image physically. We lie about our mental capacity. We lie about what's going on with other people. So relationships get messed up. Um, we were we had mentioned the show The Bachelor to our kids, and they had never seen the show. So we were like, well, we need to remedy that. That show is all about drama. And the producers do a delightful job of putting these people in horrible situations where they want lies to start going around the house of the people that are all living together so that they get drama moments and they can film them and put them into the show. But the truth of God's word is what God says about them. John 17, I'll, I'm going to read this whole passage. John 17, I'm going to start in verse 14. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So, verse 17, sanctify them by your truth, and your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they may be sanctified in the truth. 
the laver is forever an image of sanctification that happens by the word of God and that mirror of the Bible that tells us who we are. And the first step towards healing and good mental wealth and wellness, er, mental health and wellness, not the other way around, that's bad, is to start with the promises God's made and what he said about us. You're a child of God. He's got a plan for your life, right? And those are hard things to believe when you don't see God at work. But if you want to see God at work, you keep reading till the end of chapter 40. This time, the order of layout is not necessarily the spiritual process, but it's not a coincidence either, because now we have all these pieces. And I'm just going to remind you, because remembering is one of the major themes. The way we laid this out is in Danny's notebook, where it's laid out in the shape of a cross. And this time when we read through it, we read through it in the shape of the cross. The ark, the table, the lamp, the altar of incense, the altar, the laver of washing, and the bronze altar. And we actually, this time we go through it, it lays it out in that order and sets it up. We'll keep moving. Verse 9. Uh, the place where they're told to do this is, by the way, Exodus 27. So we've just jumped forward, what, two chapters? Uh, verse 9. Then they made the court on the south side. The hangings of the court were of fine woven linen, linen 100 cubits long. There were 20 pillars for them with 20 bronze sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. On the north side, the hangings were 100 cubits long with 20 pillars and their 20 bronze sockets. The hooks of the pillars with their bands were silver. And on the west side, there were hangings of 50 cubits with 10 pillars in their sockets. And the hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. For the east side, the hangings were 50 cubits. And the hangings of one side were the, of the gate were 15 cubits long with their three pillars and their three sockets. And the same for the other side of the court gate. On this side, that there were hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. All the hangings of the court all around were fine woven linen, and the sockets for the pillars were bronze, and the hooks of the pillars were the bands of silver, and the overlay of their capitals was silver, and all the pillars of the court had bands of silver. The screen for the gate of the court was woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and of fine woven linen. So you've got a white courtyard all the way around this area where people can gather and be in the presence of God and it's separated from the rest of the camp. It's a space set apart. And the doorway of the courtyard is woven of the same colors as the doorway to heaven, right? The length was 20 cubits. The height along with its was five cubits corresponding to the hangings of the court. And there were four pillars with their four sockets of bronze. Their hooks were silver and their overlay of their capitals and their bands was silver. All the pegs of the tabernacle and all the court all around were bronze. There's your curtain wall. Purify, sanctify, glorify, all in order. There's a system here that gives glory to people over time. It occurred to me that if the system for God, for people's lives, is to purify or atone, sanctify, and then be in the glory of God, the plan that the world has for your life is kind of the opposite. If you just flip those to their opposites, the plan that the world might have or even the enemy might have for our lives is to corrupt us, to get us to do things that we shouldn't be doing. Then there's a depravity. And then finally, instead of glorification, there's a shame. Right, And it goes in that order, corruption, depravity, shame. And that's the path that the world has that many people go and discover for themselves. The path God has is to purify, sanctify, and glorify. If you put the two right next to each other, it's not a hard choice. But we still see millions of people choose the opposite one because the corruption part is so fun, right? 
It, the eternal, eternal destiny that God has is in direct opposition to the real, the reality that the world has for people. And you have to have some faith that God's plan will actually end in glory. In the same case, we don't care if the world's plan ends in shame, right? Because the step of purify takes more work than the step of corruption. It means being set apart, like we read in that passage from John. So now it's all set up. This is the meaning of eternity on display for all of the people of Israel. And it's right in the middle of their camp. Verse 21, now we're going to make the materials for the tabernacle, or there's going to be an inventory that's listed here. This is the inventory of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, which was counted according to the commandment of Moses for the service of the Levites and by the hand of Ithamar. Great name for a kid. The son of Aaron the priest. Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And with him was Ahioliab, the son of Ahisamach, the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer, a weaver of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and of fine linen. So there's going to be an accounting of how much stuff got used, which is kind of new for Exodus. It's a display of Moses' leadership and his desire to do accounting. So we have an example of the entire profession of accounting that's going to happen here. And it's not an accident that's in a Bible. It's tough to read through this, but it shows us how detailed Moses was with his leadership, that it mattered when stuff came in for the service of God, that there was an accounting of it, and that it's on display for all eternity. That's accountability. So when Moses is using God's money, he doesn't do it flippantly and he doesn't do it privately. It's on display, it's documented, and it's written in detail. And I think that models how Christians should be handling God's money in the church. We should know what happens to our money when we give tithe. So the leaders here get named. I think that was interesting that there was a ton of work to do here, and it doesn't seem like or we don't have any record of their training to do it. There were slaves in Egypt, and now they're managing the money of a, you know, a million plus people's tithe. And God seems to have given them the ability to get the job done, even though it might have clearly been over their head a week ago, right? And I think that's encouragement for when God calls us to do jobs that are way over our head. God's called us to do it, like give it a shot and see what happens. Verse 24, all the gold that was used in the work of the holy place, that is, the gold of the offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. That's the weight that they used. And the silver from those who were numbered in the, of the congregation was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And a bakah for each man, that is a half shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Remember, that's how they would do their census when God called it, is everybody gave a half shekel of silver. For everyone included in numbering of from 20 years old and above for 603,550 men, this is where throughout Exodus I've said, oh, and there's like almost 2 million people here. This is where you get that number from because they collected these shekels. Each man gave a shekel. And for each man, if you estimate that there's roughly a 50-50 male-female population, which still to me is a miracle that that just works out that way, um, then you can double the 600,000 and have now you have 1.2 million people. And if they say everyone over 21 years of age, assuming their average lifespan is like 60 years old, that's really generous, right? If you went to 50, then it would be a bigger number. 
but assuming 60, and because I'm not that good at math, that would mean that 30% of the population is under 20 years old, right? So now we have 1.8 million people that are the nation of Israel. So that's a massive number, and it and you don't have to sit and to get in discussions about how to interpret the leaders and the judges, which we did before, which was another way you can come at the same number. Verse 27, from the 100 talents of silver were cast the sockets of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil, 100 sockets from the 100 talents, one talent for each socket. Then from the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars, overlaid their capitals and made bands for them. That's bands that would be a construction band, not a musical band. <laughs> Exodus 30 is where they talk about the census. Okay, wrapping up this chapter. Verse 29, the offering of bronze was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. And with it, he made the sockets for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, the bronze altar, the bronze grating for it, and all the utensils for the altar, the sockets for all the court all around, the bases for the court gate, and all the pegs for the tabernacle, and all the pegs for the court all around. Those that look at this much gold, silver, and bronze and add it up would estimate that we just mentioned about $15 million worth of materials. This is like in the middle of their camp on display is a giant come attack us and you'll be really wealthy to every nation around them. Um, and I just thought that was, that's a lot of money that's just out there on display in the middle of the camp. It'd be about 19,000 pounds. So the equivalent of, um, you know, if you had 20 cars or something to that effect, right? Um, and in Exodus 12:36, again, we're kind of remembering the whole book here. Exodus 12:36, the source of all this wealth was when the Egyptians were trying to just get them to leave and they could go to people's houses and just take stuff. So if 1.8 million people go to a door and say, you know, well, let's take your stuff and they grab an armload full of stuff, that amounts to about 19,000 pounds worth of gold, silver, and bronze and some opals. Chapter 39. Now we're going to make the clothing for the priests of the blue, purple, and scarlet thread. They made garments for the ministry. Um, they were told to do this back in Exodus 28. So again, we were kind of going through the whole book for ministering in the holy place. And they made holy garments for Aaron as the Lord commanded Moses. There we see that phrase again. They make an ephod. And he made an ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. And they beat the gold into thin sheets and cut it into threads to work it in with the blue, purple, and scarlet thread and the fine linen into artistic designs. They made the shoulder straps for it and coupled it together. And it was coupled together at its two edges. And the intricately woven band of his ephod that was on it was the same was of the same workmanship woven of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and of the fine woven linen as the Lord had commanded Moses. I think it's interesting that the ephod's one of the only places where they weave that gold thread in with the gold. In, normally they just say blue, purple, scarlet on the door and on that. But on this, you've got God's gold thread woven throughout it too that ties this all together. Um, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 6. And they set onyx stones enclosed in the settings of gold, and they were engraved as signets are engraved with the names of the sons of Israel. And then he put on he put them on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel as the Lord commanded Moses. It occurred to me, after just having 
gone out and looked up like how much all that other stuff weighed. Just this outfit would have been like putting on a suit of armor. This when the high priest takes on the role of high priest, that garment has weight to it. This is a bulky thing because those that those opals set in gold settings, that alone would be pretty heavy. But to have the whole thing also interlaced with gold thread, suddenly this gets heavier and heavier, and it would have been a burden to carry that weight. So there's one thought about this thing. The making of the bright breastplate from back in Exodus 28, those stones represent how precious Israel is to God. And he didn't really give an interpretation anywhere else in the Bible for what the stones are, other than that they represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And there's going to be these 12 stones of various kinds on this breastplate that cover the heart of the priest while he's working. So that weight, that burden that the high priest should have, he should have a burden for his people that covers his heart. Kind of a cool image. Um, and then a the last thought with this is, again, in the same way that this courtyard is on display for everybody to see, that high priest is taking the crown jewels and putting them on display for the whole country when he comes in, out to that bronze altar and does that atonement sacrifice. The blood of those beasts would have splashed on all this, but the high price that God has for his people is on display for everyone to see. And later in the New Testament, it's called a bride price, right? That there's this idea that God is seeking his people as a bride. And the, in some ways, that bride price is of the most valuable, precious gems that the planet Earth has to offer, decorating this covering of the heart for this high priest. And he made the breastplate, artistically woven like the workmanship of the ephod, of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and of fine woven linen. Verse 9, they made the breastplate square by doubling it over. And a span was its length, and the span was its width when, the, when doubled. And when they set it in four rows of stones, a row with a sardius, topaz, and emerald was on the first row. The second row, a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. Third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. I want to know which tribe got to be the agate. Because amongst these other stones that are super valuable, you've got one that's like an agate. <laughs> Anyways. The fourth roll, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. And there they were enclosed in settings of gold in their mountings. And there were 12 stones according to the names of the sons of Israel, according to their names, engraved like a signet, each one with its own name according to the 12 tribes. And they don't tell us which stone went with which tribe. And they made chains for the breastplate at the ends, like braided cords of pure gold. If this is an image of heaven and we get to heaven and there's like a high priest Jesus with this thing on, and these things got engravings on them, I think it would be a really awkward moment to walk up and say, just stand there. I just want to read the stones because I want to know which one went with which stone. But that'd be interrupting whatever was going on. And they'd say, get off the stage, Sean. You, you can read the stones later. Verse 16, 16. They also made two settings of gold and two rings, gold rings, and put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. And they put the two braided chains of gold in the two rings on the ends of the breastplate. Again, the detail here is just exactly what we read before. And it's just one of those things to remember, like what they're trying to say with each one of these is they did it exactly as they were told. And then they did this exactly as they were told. 
Verse 18, the two ends of the two braided chains, they fastened in the two settings, just like they were told, and put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod in the front. And they made two rings of gold and put them on the two ends of the breastplate with on the edge of it, which was on the inward side of the ephod. They made two other gold rings and put them on the two shoulder straps underneath the ephod towards its front, right at the seam above the intricately woven band of the ephod. They had to be thinking, why is it important that we do it exactly this way? Because this seems to be really, this was the point where I wanted to get back on this. This is really particular instructions. And whoever's doing this has to be thinking, does the God of the universe really care if we do it like this? Does this even matter how we buckle the suspenders on? Yes, it does. God cares about the little stuff. And he cares about these little insignificant things because he wants, I think, A, an obedient people and a people that remember what he told them to do without having to know why we were told to do it. And this is a massive theological question. When God tells us to do something and we don't understand why, people tend to push back against God. But here in verse 21, they're not pushing back. They're just doing what God told them to do, the way God told them to do it. And they bound the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord so that it would be above the intricately woven band of the ephod that the breastplate would not come loose from the ephod as the Lord had commanded Moses. As they were told, they did it. This is beautiful. Then we make the other priestly garments. Verse 22, he made the robe of the ephod of woven work and all of blue. And there was an opening in the middle of the robe like the opening in a coat of mail with a woven binding all around the opening so that it would not tear. And they made the hem of the robe pomegranates of blue, purple and scarlet and fine woven linen. Note that the gold isn't necessarily interlaced in the fabric on these, but they are in the little bells. Verse 25, and they made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates on the hem of the robe all around the pomegranates and a bell of a pomegranate, a bell of a pom a bell and a pomegranate a bell and a pomegranate, all of them, the hem of the robe to the minister in, as the Lord commanded Moses. They made tunics, artistically woven of fine linen, for Aaron and his sons, a turban of fine linen, exquisite hats of fine linen. Well, that's an exquisite hat. It's the compl best compliment you can give someone. Short trousers, and those are short trousers, of fine woven linen and a sash of fine woven linen with blue, purple, and scarlet thread made by a weaver as the Lord commanded Moses. I got to that and I thought, I think that's a hilarious way to describe an outfit. And I think God put that just in there for me to find humor in the middle of all of these chapters. Only the truly dedicated get through these chapters. And God rewards the truly dedicated with a phrase like short trousers. Anyways. And then we get to the penultimate conclusion of all of this stuff. Then they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And they tied it to a blue cord and fastened it above the turban as the Lord commanded Moses, faithful done job, well done, good and faithful nation of Israel. The people do it with unity. This is a huge job. They get it all done. It's about the clothes. Notice that we didn't talk about Aaron here. We talked about the work that had to get done was the clothing, not the people. God doesn't necessarily need the people, but he wants them to fill these roles that he has for them. So God has a plan for them. 
but he can take anybody and put them into the robes. The robes are the symbolic part of what needs to happen. And the people are just interchangeable, which is a humble view of humanity in our role in our towards God. He doesn't need us, but he wants us to take up these mantles and fill these roles. And he says he's seeking all over the whole earth for a faithful person. And he wants those faithful people to serve in his kingdom and do what he's asking them to do and to take that on. So this is the final item. It takes center stage. It's not about human glory. It's about God's glory, holiness to the Lord. None of this holiness is about humans being holy or high priests that look anything like Egypt. This is about God being holy and taking that place. Then the work is finished, right? So we get a final list that kind of mirrors Exodus 35 verses 10 through 19, where they kind of said, and then they were supposed to do all these things. Remember that summary list in 35? This is kind of like a mirror of it, which kind of tells us that we're moving to the next section. So this is in detail now that we just read over the last two and a half chapters. But at the end of this chapter, 39, we just get the overview. So look at all the stuff that was done. Verse 32, thus, and that's a key word to like, we're wrapping it up too. All the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, check. And all the, ch and the children of Israel did, did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did it. And they brought the tabernacle of Moses to the tent and all its furnishings, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, the covering of ram skins dyed red, the covering of badger skins and the veil of covering, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table, all its utensils, the showbread, the pure gold lampstand with its lamps, the lamps set in order, all its utensils and the oil for light, the gold altar, the anointing oil, the sweet incense, the screen for the tabernacle door, the bronze altar, the grates of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the laver with its base, the hangings of the court, its pillars, its sockets, the screen for the court gate, the cords and its pegs, all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting, and the garments of ministry to minister to the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and his son's garments and their short trousers, to minister as priests according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did all the work. That's the point here. They did the work. To what? They haven't seen what they've done. Remember, God's not up on the mountain anymore, and he's not shining in their presence anymore. They're just doing the work, right? Then Moses looked over all the work. He's the guy that got the original image. It's right and proper that he's taking a leadership role and a supervisory role in this because he's got to look at the work and make sure it matches what God showed him. Then Moses looked over all the work, and indeed they had done it, as the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. And Moses rightly blesses them. And Moses blessed them. Moses knew what it looked like, Exodus 25, 9. He was right to watch it. And now in the truth of what he saw, he puts a blessing on the people. I want to be blessed. And I think that's why we're here at a Bible study. We would like to be blessed. If you want to be blessed, and you're looking at this particular example, if you do what God says exactly as God say to do it, you get blessed because that's the proper thing to do. It doesn't say you'll get rich. It doesn't say you will have multiple puppies in your house. It doesn't say any, it doesn't say what the blessing is, but it does say you'll be blessed. And I think when God blesses us, it may take different forms for different people, but we feel blessed because we have those things that God knows we need and what we want in our life, right? Chapter 40.
This isn't even a marathon so far. Then the Lord, then the Lord, we're re- this is the end of the book. This is the final scene. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. All right. So wait a couple days, take a little break here after all your work, and you're going to set it up, but God gives him a particular date to do it. What is this date? It's the anniversary of when they were taken out of Egypt. It's been one year. So the beginning of the new year, there's probably about a two-week delay here. So we know from Exodus 12 uh, that when they were released, it's been a huge year of growth. And again, this is that theme of remembering. It's been a year. Think of how far they have come in one year's time that this book covers. You were slaves, now you're not. You were terrified and thought you were going to get killed. You were not. You crossed the Red Sea. You saw water come out of a rock. You saw manna fall from heaven. You saw fire on the mountain. You saw the nation come together unified, making the tabernacle of God, the center of all of God's plan on earth at this time. The divine timing of this is wonderful. Um, And when we remember and reflect on what God's done, that's what we do on these holidays. When we get to the new year, when we get to Christmas, what has God done for the year? That's the whole point of our New Year's celebrations, right? We make our promises for this next year, our vows, right? Our resolutions for the new year. But part of the New Year celebration is re- remembering what has happened to us this year. What does it look like? And here's why I think that's important. I think God's hand in our life is sometimes so gentle and so tender and so wonderful that we as humans just live in day to day we don't see what God's done in our life. That you have to take those bigger one-year, two-year, three-year lookbacks and go, what was life like before I was in this church or in this small group? What was life like before I started college, before I started my job? How much have I grown in one year in my workplace or in my school or in my relationships, right? And I think that's part of the beauty of God is that I want a God that works in my life where I still feel like I'm my own person. I don't want to be dominated by a God. And God doesn't do that to his children. He simply works with you to have you grow over time. And these moments of remembrance are where you can actually see it because it's really easy for humans to miss God's hand in our life because it's so gentle. And it's really easy for us to take credit for all of our successes, even though we had no idea how to start in on that journey. God opened the doors, God made the opportunities, God built the relationships, God healed the relationships, and he does it beautifully and gently. Verse 3. Chapter 40, verse 3, by the way. We're moving so fast. You may not even be in the right chapter. You shall put it in the Ark of the Testimony. You should put it, and what it is is the the tabernacle, the... Um, the law or the, the peace. You shall put it in the Ark of the Testimony... And the partition, you shall put it, put in it the ark. Am I reading that funny? You shall put... The ark in the right. You shall put in it the ark of the testimony. So the tabernacle is the it that we're talking about, right? Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. And partition off the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange the things that are set on it in order on it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and light its lamps. And you shall set the altar of gold for the incense before the Ark of the Testimony and put up the screen door for the door of the tabernacle. And then you shall set the altar of burnt offering 
before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen at the court gate. So there's still more to do. They've done it all, but now they got to assemble it all. There's obedience in doing both. And you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that's in it, and you shall hollow it and all its utensils, and it shall be holy. And you shall anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar, and the altar shall be most holy. And you shall anoint the laver in its base and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and wash them with water. Again, Aaron and his sons don't do anything to get that role of priest. They serve and they obey when they're told. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron. He doesn't put them on himself and anoint him and consecrate him so that he may minister to me as priest. And you shall bring his sons and clothe them with the tunics and you shall anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may minister to me as priests, for their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Thus did Moses, according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did it. So the people obey and God obeys. Hebrews 8.5 points out that Moses was clearly to do everything according to a pattern. So God had a pattern for him and he does it. If you want a full description of the ceremony that they just talked about, we're going to get to it in like a month. So Leviticus 8 and Leviticus 9 give the whole detail of the ceremony. At this point in the Bible, it's about God. It's not about the ceremonies and the particulars. So God actually skips those specifics here in the in the way it's laid out, and we'll get to them in the next book. And it came to pass, verse 17, in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month that the tabernacle was raised. So Moses raised up the tabernacle, fastened its sockets, set up its boards, put in its bars, and raised up its pillars. And he spread out the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he took the testimony and put it into the ark and inserted the poles through the rings of the ark. And he put the mercy seat on top of the ark. Each item gets placed. He brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of the covering, and partitioned off the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table of the tabernacle of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and he set up the bread in order in order upon it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tabernacle of meeting across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and he lit the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he put the gold altar in the tabernacle of meeting in front of the veil, and he and, at, and he burned sweet incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he hung up the screen at the door of the tabernacle, and he put the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered upon it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put the water there for washing. And Moses, Aaron, and his sons would wash their hands and feet with it from water from it. It's interesting that all God demands is that they wash their hands and feet. And that the washing of the hands and the washing of the feet constitutes a cleansing of the whole body, right? That's a reasonable thing for God to do. Because we don't want to look at that business when the priests are doing that in front of the whole people. And it's symbolically, I think, really important that we know that when we are cleansed, when our feet are washed and our hands are washed, that that cleanses everything. And when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples to ordain them for priesthood, 
that was highly symbolic to Jewish people. They would have seen that washing because they washed their hands for the meal, but their feet needed to be washed too because God wasn't, Jesus wasn't preparing them for a meal. He was preparing them to be his holy priesthood. So the feet had to get washed too. And it makes that moment just explode with meaning. And it's just more than just being a humble servant. He was doing an ordination ceremony when he did that washing. And this is where that comes from. This is the law, or as C.S. Lewis would say, the deeper law that he was he was acting in, which makes a great story. And he was a humble servant. That's a fine way to interpret that passage. But to a Jewish reader that knew these traditions and these deeper laws, there was something else going on there too. And that was this ordination kind of thing. So they washed their hands and their feet with water from it. Whenever they went into the tabernacle of meeting and whenever they came near the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. (laughs) He had a lot to do. That was a lot for just one person to do, but Moses had some work there. Washing keeps happening. Notice that it's ongoing. And I think that's significant when we look at kind of the design of our relationship with God. There's a teaching in the church where you say a prayer of salvation and you're saved, and that's it, and there's nothing more to it. And that's not the image we get here. The image we get here is, yes, there's an atoning that needs to happen, but that wash basin is an ongoing thing, and it happens whenever you want to come near the Lord, which means that sanctification process happens all through our Christian life, where the atonement process is, yeah, could be a single prayer of atonement. But even the atonement, people would come yearly to the tabernacle to give that sacrifice of atonement. So those kind that idea that it's kind of one and done and somehow God's been tricked into letting you into heaven, that's a dangerous theology. Because biblically speaking, you're supposed to be seeking atonement every time you sin, and you're supposed to be sanctifying and washing yourself in the truth of God's word always, continually, whenever you want to be in the presence of God. So the danger of the one and done is you might be in the presence of God once, And the rest of your life, you really don't feel the presence of God at all. Moses finishes it, finishes it according to the pattern. That pattern gets repeated throughout the Bible. Revelation 4 has the ark or the throne and the lampstand and the laver. Revelation 8 has the altar of incense right in heaven. So this is all an image of heaven. Isaiah 6 talks about the brazen altar that's in the temple. So all these pieces we just talked about are going to keep showing up throughout the Bible. And then we get to the end, which is Steph's favorite part, the cloud and the glory. Huh, you've done all this work for the Lord. You've set everything up. You've done it according to how God told you to do it. What's the reward? Boom, the presence of God is seen. So I'll read it quick. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Without God, this is just one big silly and very expensive tent, right? None of this is worth anything Unless God comes in and fills it with his glory, he does in verse 34. Verse 35, and Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. First of all, this is repeated when Solomon builds the temple. Same thing happens in 1 Kings 8, 10, and and 11. And there's this idea that God just kind of comes with such power that humans can't even come in. Again, this is God's plan for us. It's not a human design to come closer to God. We're not building a stairway to heaven. 
the heavens come down to us and God descends on the tabernacle of meeting and he rests on it, right? So God comes down to humans to the point where even Moses can't go into the presence because this is about God opening a door for people, not about Moses having some plan. Here's another thought. God's omnipresent. God was always there. The only thing that's changed is now God's made himself visible to the people of Israel. Israel. Does that make sense? Like he was always there. The cloud is just something God's putting there so they can see something. And that's an amazing thing because it's God's presence or it's Emmanuel. It's God with us, right? It is the image of God in the middle of our presence. Location of this tabernacle is right in the middle of the camp. So they wake up in the morning. They see the cloud of glory in the temple. When they go to bed at night, they'd see the fire of God right in the middle of their camp. It must have been nice to have God with us. It says that in heaven, there will be no need for the sun or need for light because the light of God will fill our presence. That's amazing. So heaven is to be in the presence of God. These Israelites, for a short period in history, got to essentially live in heaven. They got to be in an environment where God was at the middle and the center of their life. And that's the same heaven Jesus offers to us while we still walk on this earth. That if we serve God and obey God, his presence in the Holy Spirit will descend on us, just like at Pentecost, right? And that Holy Spirit will come and abide and dwell with us as people. Here's the other thought. If God's always in our life, and the only thing that changes is our ability to see God, then if we don't see God in our life, that should put us into panic mode, right? And if we and if we want to see God in our life, we know when we're told what to do. We're supposed to wash in God's word. We're supposed to study the word of God. We're supposed to atone for our sins. Don't have a bunch of sin in your life and think that you're going to be able to see God's hand in your life. Take care of your sins. Wash and be sanctified. Study the word of God. And then I think this thing, then do the work. If God says to do it in the Bible, do it. Don't make excuses for it. Do what God tells us to do, no matter how hard that is, right? And then slowly and surely, you can start doing that remembering piece and seeing God's hand in your life. Not as a force, not as a lightning bolt, but as a still small voice that comes after the earthquake and after the fire and after the storm. It's the same thing today. It hasn't changed. The covenant is the, is the same deal, right? that Jesus fulfills all of these things. And what they're going to do throughout Leviticus is take on a bunch of practices that are foreshadowing of Jesus and what that's going to look like. So when they're on the right path and they do the right thing, God confirms it in the same way that Moses gets all mad when they're not on the right path. And that's how God guides. We do the right thing where there's confirmation in it. We do the wrong thing, there's not. So the people welcome God into their camp and God shows up. And in our life, I think that's kind of the same thing. If we welcome God into our life, we're not ashamed of Christ, then he's not ashamed of us. And he comes and lives in our life. So there was a promise made back in Exodus 29 that if they do all this stuff, God will dwell with them. In these last verses, that's what's fulfilled. Whenever the cloud was taken up above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onwards in all their journeys. So this is the last few sentences of Exodus. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. If God moved, they moved. If God stayed put, they stayed put. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day and the fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. 
throughout all their journeys. I want to make one last point and I'm going to just focus on the last word, journeys. Because I already talked about the fire and the light. Having the Lord at the center of your life. The promises kept. All the way back at the beginning, the people of Israel were being pressed upon by the world of Egypt. And now they have hope. And that's the opposite end. We've come from one side of the spectrum and at the end of Exodus, we're all the way at the other side of the spectrum. And the hope is the journeys. So not only have they finished the journey of Exodus, but the end of the Exodus journey is the promise of more journeys to come. This is the end of a great adventure book, right? The promise of more to come. This is just the beginning, right? So... Exodus has been a journey and it's been a ton of work and there's been a ton of failure in that journey. But at the end, they did it right. Okay. The journey, all journeys have an ending. The idea of a journey is the implication, the implication of an end of that journey. We're going somewhere. And I love that that book of Exodus ends with that because they've built an image of heaven. The rest of the journeys are the actual trip to heaven and how we get there. That is, unless the Pharisees start to twist all of this and make it a set of rules and regulations, which they will. But even then, that's when Jesus shows up. When it gets to be the height of the human regulation system under the pharisaical orders, that's exactly when Jesus shows up. And he basically says, all of that stuff that the Pharisees made up, that's not real. What's real is an image of heaven, and you're going to go there, and I'm going to put the hope of heaven in your heart. And Jesus comes as an infant child to show us that hope. And we get to remember that at Christmas time, right? We get to look back at the year and see what that looks like. And the hope of God is exactly how we end this chapter. Leviticus, the next book, goes right into, okay, if we're on all these journeys, what does it look like to worship God? And I'm talking capital W worship, big worship in all of its forms and in all of its detail. And we'll get that. So worshiping God is to live life in a certain way with a call for holiness in our life. And in Leviticus, we get the particulars of the priesthood and how to do that. So when you become a priest, this is the manual, the manual of the priesthood. And we get into all sorts of weird topics in Leviticus, but there's all sorts of weirdness in life too. And we have to deal with some of those things. Let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, thank you so much for this book. Thank you for the journey that you took the Israelites on and the journey that you still have for each of our lives. The hope of heaven and the hope of abiding with you. Um, Lord, we love the Holy Spirit, um, but Lord, we can't wait to meet you face to face. We can't wait to, wait to be in your presence and to see that visibly in our, in our, in our time with you in heaven. Um, Lord, we live on a journey doing what you've told us to do and help us, Lord, to do it the way you told us to do it and, and in spirit and in truth, not to be weasels and not to, to think of exceptions to the rules or ways to get out of it. But Lord, help us to just be humble servants and do what you tell us to do because you've got a plan and help us to rely on that plan. We know you are a good God and you mean all things for uh, your glory, Lord, and you mean all things for good. So help us to just follow those things and do it as you've said to do it. Help us to remember you. And Lord, as we go into the holidays and Christmas and New Year, help us, Lord, to just take this time to remember what you've done in our lives, that your hope as an infant and the journey you took as a Christ and the sacrifice you made on the cross, that it does change our life and it brings us hope and it brings us peace. And just thank you for that. Lord, I thank you for the friendships 
and the unity in Christ that we have in our small group and in our Bible study. I just thank you for all the people that aren't here tonight. Um, and I thank you for all the people that are here. And Lord, I just pray you bless each and every one of them. May your presence be known, Lord, as we're trying to do this the way you tell us to do it. And we're studying your word with faithfulness and scholarship, Lord. Um, I just pray that you make your presence known to us, that you abide in the center of our life and that we can see your presence morning and we can see it at night. Uh, there's no doubt because we continue to walk with you and we continue to see you as we do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.